As we continue our study in Ephesians entitled The Gospel Revealed, I'm going to begin this morning in the same way as last week. I will read our text in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'll pray for us and we'll continue our study. Join me in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. You are worthy of all the glory and all the honor. Lord, I know that nothing will happen here this morning if you don't show up. Use this broken vessel, Father. Keep me from error. Hold me to the text. And I pray that you would be glorified this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Last week, we covered a lot of ground. But it's important that we do a little review for the foundation of what we're going to talk about this week. As we walked through the first five verses of this passage, we were able to make several observations. First, in defining man's state or condition before a holy, righteous, and good God, we determined that man is spiritually, legally dead and beyond resuscitation. At the end of verse 1 in our word study, we saw that we are only spiritually, we are not only spiritually, legally dead and beyond resuscitation, We are in open and willful rebellion against our creator God with no capacity or desire for change. We are willfully dead. And in Genesis 8 we read, we are born that way. Next we wrestled with why we don't see the full extent of man's depravity manifested in all of mankind. And as we look through the biblical lens of Luke 18, Mark 10, and James 1, we saw that no one is good except for God alone. And that all that is good finds its beginning in him. We saw through the judgment of God in Romans 1 that God in his goodness restrains evil men and this is why the willfully dead can appear to be good. In our examination of the doctrine of original sin, we discovered the concept of federal headship, federal headship, which helps us to understand the imputation or charge of Adam's choice to us as our perfect representative. We then made this statement that in his perfect representation of us, Adam being made first in his free will, not being deceived but knowing full well the commandment of the Lord, objectively chose to rebel against his God, and so did we. 
and man continues to do so. Man in himself is without hope and willfully dead. And we finally got to the good part, as John read this morning, and it's worth reading again, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Through the study of this verse, we were able to say that salvation, or the act of raising those who were willfully dead to resurrected life, is the work of God alone. Who remembers what the, the term or the phrase for the work of God alone is? Anybody remember what that theology is? Monergism. Monergism, the work of one. God, because of who he is, and in his sovereign will alone, knowing that all of mankind would rebel in Adam and continue to do so, chose before the foundation of the world to call a people to himself out of those who were willfully dead, extending grace through the work of Christ on the cross and in the power of his resurrection from the dead, raised willfully dead men to resurrected life. As we continue our study, we find that not only does God raise willfully dead men to resurrected life in Christ, as we read in verse 5, But as we continue in verse 6 and 7, we read, He, being God, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that we who are resurrected from the dead are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places? This verse is talking about having access to the presence of the Lord to Yahweh, the God who is. To help us understand the weight and significance of what is being granted, we have to do a short overview of what access to the presence of the Lord looked like in the Old Covenant. If you recall the story, God sends Moses to lead his people, Israel, out of Egypt, and toward the end of Exodus in chapter 24, God calls Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, 15 through 18 says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. If we were to continue reading chapter 25 through chapter 31, we would find all the commandments of the Lord with very detailed and specific instructions for the people of Israel and how they are to worship him. Among these instructions, they are commanded to build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest plated with gold inside and out and with gold trim. It had two gold-plated wooden poles that went through two rings on each side to allow it to be carried by the priest as the Israelites moved from place to place on their journey to the Promised Land. Inside the ark, they kept the golden urn with the manna that God commanded them to keep as a remembrance of his provision, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the law that God gave to Moses. Now the lid, or the top of this chest, was particularly special and had a special purpose And I want to read its description from Exodus chapter 25, verse 17 through 22. This is the Lord giving instruction to Moses. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. breadth. <clears throat> and you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces toward one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Mercy seat, or kephareth, in the Hebrew, means place of atonement. Place of atonement. And it is from this place of atonement between the cherubim that, that the presence of the Lord would come and dwell. Now the tabernacle was a large, elaborate tent with four layers of cover over the main structure that served as a nomadic temple uh, for the people of Israel unto the Lord. Inside, there were two rooms separated by a heavy curtain known as the veil with cherubim embroidered on it. The veil separated the front room known as the holy place where the priests would, re would regularly perform their duties and cleansing rituals from the back room known as the most holy place. It is here in the back room that the Ark of the Covenant was kept. No one was allowed to enter this room except for the high priest once a year on what was known as the Day of Atonement. I want to read the short account of Aaron's two oldest sons in Leviticus 10. They were priests who attempted to enter the presence of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Levit Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 says, now Nadab, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. <clears throat> then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, says the Lord. That word sanctified in the Hebrew word, kadesh, kadesh, which means to consecrate, dedicate, be holy, be separate, and be hallowed. The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, says that among those who draw near to me, I will be regarded as holy, I will be separate, and I will be hallowed. In Leviticus chapter 16, God gives instruction for the manner in which the high priest once a year could draw to the, near to the presence of the Lord. I want to read a couple of portions of this text to help us understand what is required to come into his presence. Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. 
These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Skip down to verse 11 if you're following. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coal of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put, it, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he doesn't die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in the front of the mercy seat shall... See, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Excuse me. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, all their sins. The Lord Yahweh, the God who is, he is holy, holy, holy. That is, he is completely and definitively other than, and no man can stand in his unveiled presence. Even the high priest of God had to be veiled from the presence of the Lord by the smoke from the incense so that he wouldn't die. And in order to atone for his sins and those of the people, there had to be blood sacrifice. How is it that any of us could draw near to him? and be given unrestricted, open access to the Father. It is through Christ as our great high priest and perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. He, being Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's blood had to be shed for there to be eternal redemption. The wrath of God against the rebellion of those he has chosen to draw to himself had to be satisfied. The Lord could not excuse or justify the willfully dead and still be righteous and just, as it says in Romans 3.26, without the atonement and sacrifice and propitiation of his wrath being made in Christ's death on the cross. Jesus Christ, the, son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, came to earth born of a virgin, not under Adam's federal headship, lived a sinless life in perfect communion with the Father, keeping all of God's commandments, and went to the cross. And Galatians 3 tells us he became a curse in the place of those he chose to save. To help us understand, at least in part, what it means or what it meant for Christ to become a curse in our place, I want to look at an account during Israel's journey to the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 27. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, God divided the Levitical priest into two groups. These groups would stand on separate mountaintops, and one from the Mount Gerizim, 
Those priests were to call out the blessings of the Lord over those who would keep his commandments. And from Mount Ebal, those priests would call out the curses of the Lord for those who would not keep his commandments. I'm going to read what the priests were to declare from the Mount Ebal in Deuteronomy 27, verses 14 through 26. There's a crowd participation in this text. After each curse is proclaimed, the people are to answer or respond, amen. Deuteronomy 27, 14 through 26. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and the people shall say, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and, at, and all the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people will say. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people will say. And cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people will say. Now before our flesh rises up within us, because it will, and we look at this list of curses and say to ourselves, well, I haven't done that one or I would never do that. We need to be reminded that James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. The Sunday before Easter, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ, in perfect submission, asked the Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I submit to you that the curse he bore for those God chose is what was in the cup. There is no denying the brutality of the Romans and the physical anguish Christ endured on that day, but it was in no comparison to being cursed and forsaken by the Father. On that brutal cross, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, took on himself the sins of those the Father chose before the foundation of the world for the only time, and for the only time in all of eternity, there was separation between God the Father and God the Son. The father, forsaking his son, poured out his wrath and cursed him as if he himself had rebelled and broken every commandment. And Isaiah 53 tells us it pleased the Lord to crush him. If you are in Christ, this was the price of your regeneration. This is what it cost for you to be allowed to draw near to the presence of the Lord. And it was through his sacrifice that you, who were once an enemy of God, can be shown the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. All of this is through Christ and through Christ alone. As we continue in our text at Ephesians chapter 2, we come to a very familiar set of verses. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For, be, for by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is it that is not your own doing? All of salvation is not your own doing. Both the grace and the faith are not your own doing. Salvation is the monergistic work of God alone. We established this last week in our study of verse 4 and 5. The faith in verse 8 is not describing a choice that you make in your willfully dead state. Legally dead men cannot make decisions or choices or works of any kind or of any value. Left to ourselves, we would continue in the choice that we made in Adam in our rebellion against our Creator. Only in a regenerate state, having been raised from the dead, can those who were once dead in resurrected life hear the word of Christ, the gospel, as it says in Romans 10, 17, and find faith in him. Faith is given as part of the gift of salvation and is the result or testimony of what God has done inside you by raising you from the dead and making you a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God decided to make a way of salvation in and of himself, and he chose before the foundation of the world those he would raise from the dead and draw to himself. It is a gift that we neither wanted or had the capacity to ask for in our willfully dead state. But if he has chosen you, the price has been paid. You will be saved. You will be raised from willfully dead to resurrected life, and you will cry out and testify in faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and it will have had nothing to do with you. Salvation is the greatest decision that you never made. I'll say it again. Salvation is the greatest decision that you never made. So why does the, the Spirit lead Paul to emphasize this point by stating so that no one may boast? In 1 Corinthians 1, he puts an even finer point on it. In verses 26 through 31, we read, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak to the, in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Romans, let me try that again. In Romans, Paul spends almost the entire first three chapters bringing all of mankind under condemnation. And then in Romans 3.27, to make sure that we understand that salvation is the work of God alone, he tells us that our boasting is excluded. Why this level of emphasis? Because our flesh is an idolater of self, and even if we have been regenerated, it longs to boast. There was an ancient heresy named for a theologian in the 5th century called Pelagianism. Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of total depravity and held instead that mankind was basically good and possessed a good moral nature. This should sound alarmingly familiar to us. 
Pelagius believed that in his free will, man bore the responsibility to choose Christ's free gift of salvation. This means Pelagius did not believe that salvation is the monergistic work of God alone, as we have clearly seen in our text, but that man cooperates with God in securing his salvation. This cooperation is known as synergism, or the belief that God's grace requires man's free will to choose him in order to accomplish his salvation. Do you see the flesh boasting in this false gospel? Pelagius was condemned as a heretic and excommunicated in 418, but our flesh longs to boast. Although the Catholic Church regards Pelagius as a heretic to this day, among its many heretical teachings, the Catholic Church believes that salvation is the synergistic work of God and man. They teach that baptism of infants erases original sin, thereby allowing them the freedom of will to cooperate with God in their salvation and be justified by their own works, not the works of Christ alone. This false teaching on salvation was the primary issue and the reason for the Reformation. In opposition to the Catholic Church's teachings and traditions, the Reformers said that Scripture is our only authority, sola scriptura, and that, te- and that it teaches us that salvation comes through grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, and in Christ alone, solus Christurus, to the glory of God alone, sola Deo gloria. Salvation is the work of God alone, and there is no room in the true gospel of Christ for the flesh to boast in any part of it. And yet I wonder, if we all had the opportunity to come up here and give our testimonies, what would we hear? Would the gospel of Christ be heard clearly? Would it be clear that the salvation of man is the work of God alone through his grace? That our faith in Christ is a gift and a loud testimony to his work of regeneration in our hearts, that he has redeemed us from our willfully dead state to new new life in Christ, to his glory alone? Would we hear things like, I remember when I asked Jesus into my heart. I walked the aisle and repeated a prayer. I decided to follow Jesus. I rededicated my life to Christ. Would an outsider sitting in on these testimonies even know that Christ is the one who saves? Martin Luther of the Reformation said it this way, if any man ascribes anything of salvation, even the very least thing to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace, and he has not learned Jesus Christ rightly. If you find yourself using synergistic language in your profession of faith, There are only two possibilities. It may be that God has saved you and you are truly regenerate, but in your error and ignorance, you have allowed your flesh to boast and have robbed Christ of the glory that only belongs to him. If this is the case, I encourage you to humble yourself before your God. His mercies are new every morning. The only other possibility is that you have believed a lie, a false gospel and are not saved, and remain in your willfully dead state. And if God does not regenerate you, and you do not come to true faith in Jesus Christ, when you stand before him, and in your flesh boast in all the things you claim to have done in his name, Christ will tell you, as he does in Matthew 7, 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The question is not, do you know Christ? The question is, does Christ know you? You say you believe, James says. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what is your profession of faith worth? James tells us faith without works is dead. It's worthless. Now the works that James is talking about is not behavioral modification or following a list of rules that say don't do this, but do this. Those works, Scripture says, are as filthy rags. The works that Scripture is describing are those of the Spirit in us and are the evidences that follow regeneration. The proof that God has raised you from the dead and made you a new creation in Christ. And out of that new creation, though you are still in your flesh, you will bear good fruit. This proof or evidences are known collectively as biblical assurance and are found throughout the New Testament. We recently spent a month in 1 John where he covers nine of these evidences and in 1 John 5.13 he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now unfortunately, there are too many of these to cover in this morning in individual detail. However, we can take all of them and boil them, them down to two things. If God chose in and of himself to save you, and you have truly been regenerated, Jesus says in Matthew 22 that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Both have to be true to be taken as evidence of God's salvation of you. And they will be observable in your life in ever-increasing measure as he sanctifies you. 1 John 4:19 through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I heard an illustration recently that I'm going to personalize a little bit, but I think it will help us understand, at least in part, the relationship between God's regenerating work in someone's life and the observable evidence of that work. Let's say that Eunice has found a new song, sorry to call you out, uh, for the choir to sing, and she's excited, and she has decided that I am going to sing the solo. Now, this is sounding more like a true story than an illustration. So let's say she asked me to sing, and I agreed. Now, the choir has been practicing for several weeks, and the day comes when we are supposed to sing the song, and I'm nowhere to be found. The choir sings the song without me. The musical worship finishes up, and halfway through Pastor John's message, I walk in the back and sit down. What do you think the choir is going to ask me at the end of the service? Where were you? So I start to tell them that I had a flat tire on the way to church. Now, as I'm telling them the story, some of them notice that my clothes are still clean, relatively. I don't have any stains on my pants from kneeling on the ground, and my hands don't look like someone who has just changed a tire. But they give me the benefit of the doubt and assume that I must have had a change of clothes and washed up before I came in. And then I tell them that I was changing the tire. The spare tire rolled out into the road, and when I went to grab it, I was hit 
by an 80,000-pound logging truck. And that's why I was late to church. What are they going to say? You're a liar. Why? Because I can't have an encounter with an 80,000-pound logging truck and not be changed. There would be evidence, and we're not talking about dirty hands and a few greasy stains on my pant legs. Now, in the same way, if you profess Christ and have truly been regenerated, there will be evidence. Why? Because you cannot claim to have an encounter with the living God and not be changed. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are in Christ, God chose before the foundation of the world to make a way for you to walk in good works to testify to what he has done. Salvation is the work of God alone, and you are his workmanship. You have been regenerated and are a new creation in Christ for the purpose of glorifying him as you live out the evidences of faith, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I know we've covered a lot this morning, and some of it may have been hard to hear. It is not my intent to upset anyone, and I do not want to be a stumbling block to those of you who have truly been found in Christ. I am not up here to declare to you who will God save. That is not my place, and we who are in Christ cannot presume upon the power of the Lord. Who he has chosen to save is God's business. And in that regard, when asked, shall these bones live, we all must answer, O Lord God, you know. But among those who claim to have faith in Christ, God through his grace has given me an intense burden and love for you, and I want you to know that you know him. If you have struggled with anything that was said this morning, or if you have questions or need clarification, please talk to me. God's gospel has been revealed. And salvation is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that our worship this morning has been a sweet sound in your ear. pray that you've kept me from error. And your gospel has gone out, Lord. As you promise in your word, those you have chosen, your sheep will hear your voice. 